0: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, both written and living. We ask that you might open our ears, allow us to engage our minds, and help us to commit our wills to what you call us to, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. After um, several months in the book of Acts, about six months as a matter of fact, and then through the season of Advent on the theme of prayer, today we return to the lectionary. I'm going to be preaching on our appointed psalm for this morning, Psalm 8. In my mind, um, I know this is somewhat subjective, Uh, this is one of the most beautiful psalms in the Psalter. Not my favorite, but one of them. What David is doing in the psalm is he is calling all those who hear it, to marvel at two particular things. One is how how far God is above us. Call this transcendence. So far above. And yet, at the very same time, how near, how imminent is the God whom we serve. We marvel at it. That word marvel is, is most well known in our culture. Any guess? That's right. Superheroes and comic strips. We've got the Marvel Universe full of all sorts of superheroes, from the Avengers to the Fantastic Four and so on and so forth, World Without End. Now, growing up, um, I wasn't the uh, biggest comic book reader, but I did have a very significant appreciation for Saturday Morning Cartoons. It's an aficionado of Saturday Morning Cartoons. One of the few times we could watch TV in my household. If you ask me back then who my favorite superhero was, it would be a tie between someone you've heard of, Spider-Man, and maybe someone that most of you have not, the Silver Surfer. Any, anyone know the Silver Surfer? A few. It's a minority. Uh, the Silver Surfer uh, is this human-like guy whose body is completely covered in silvery metallic skin, and he travels the universe riding on a galactic surfboard. Got that pictured in your mind? All right, so uh, silver skin, outer space, surfboard, game on. It doesn't, it doesn't get a lot cooler than that. There's something about superheroes, certainly that children are drawn to, but I think uh, adults as well. We, we love to just marvel at them. They're, they're larger than life. They, they possess powers that we could only dream of, and so we are astonished by them. And that is, in fact, what this word marvel means to, to be astonished, to be filled with wonder at something outside of yourself and to behold it. Biblically speaking, humans were made to do this. We were made to marvel. We're made to be astonished. We are made to be filled with wonder. Not surprisingly, uh, not at radioactive spider webs and, and silvery surfboards, uh, but at God. God, who is the first cause. The first thing. In the psalm today, we're going to hear a song of marveling. Not at some petty superhero from a human being's imagination, but at the God who made the universe. And still, the God who intervenes. Intervenes in the lives of human beings to rescue them. Right? I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 8. and Follow along. I think you'll find it helpful to have the text in front of you as we go along this morning. One of the clearest characteristics of this psalm, no doubt you noticed it as we read it responsibly moments ago, is that the first verse and the last verse are the same. There's this common refrain and they're bookends of this psalm. It envelops the other seven verses. And uh, what that does for us is it makes it very, very clear what this psalm is about. What, what's the main message that is being communicated to us? And here that refrain is, verse 1a and verse 9 O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We are told in the notes that David writes this psalm, and the very first thing that David does in both the Hebrew and in the English translation is to name the person he's talking to. O Lord, our Lord. Now in Hebrew, that word Lord, it's not the same here. There's two different words. It's in Hebrew, Yahweh Adonahu. Yahweh, the Lord, is the covenant name for God. In your Bibles, you'll, you'll know when that shows up because it's capitalized. It's capital L-O-R-D. Adonai is that second word. Um, and it has with it that, uh, that pronoun, our. Adonai is a common name for Lord. It means master. And so what David is doing here is, is emphasizing, on the one hand, God's oneness and his unique relationship to Israel through this name Yahweh. And also, Israel's unique um, willingness to come under Yahweh as Master, Lord. So you, Yahweh, the Lord, the one Lord, are our Lord and Master, Adonai. Now about this God, David says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We don't use that word majestic every day. And there's good reason for that. Uh, Majestic is something you reserve for things that are the best among us. Alright? Unless you live on the, um, the edge of the Grand Canyon, there in Grand Canyon village, you're just not uh, coming into contact with the majestic every day. That's by nature of what the majestic is. Kings and queens are called Your Majesty. Your Majesty. Why? Because they are above everyone else. You don't call anyone else Majesty, right? David, he says specifically that God's name is majestic. Interesting. Not, not God, you're majestic, but God, your name is majestic. Now, there's a lot of theology in the Bible built on this concept of God's name. Suffice it to say for today that God's name doesn't just mean his title, Yahweh. Rather, it means everything that God has revealed about himself. His nature, his character, his actions, the things he's, been, he's made known about himself himself. To all of us. So God's name is is better understood like his reputation or like his portfolio, the things that we know and can see about who he is. And David says this name is majestic, meaning in the earth, the whole planet, the whole created order, it all speaks about God the Maker, the Maker of both galaxies and of covenants. The Apostle Paul uh, will speak of this reality in the New Testament when we read Romans chapter 1. He says God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the very things that have been made. God is visible. He's majestic in the earth. Now, Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 1 that not everyone will, uh, not everyone will admit Or bow down to that reality, although it is clear to them. Some will choose to worship the creature rather than the creator. And yet David is saying, I will worship the creator. And that's the invitation that we're being given in this psalm. The second half of verse 1 goes on and expands upon that opening refrain. And it says, God, you have set your glory above the heavens. So... David is giving us another envelope here. Just as God's majesty is known in the earth, so God, your glory is known in the heavens. In other words, everything displays your glory and majesty. We should be thinking of uh, David's words elsewhere in Psalm 19, where he writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In the Old Testament, this this, uh, designation, the heavens, it can mean a couple of different things, and it depends on the context of the verses. Sometimes the heavens is a reference to the sky. Other times it is uh, it's speaking to what we know as outer space, uh, the place out there where the stars and the moon exist. In other places, the heavens simply refers to the place where God dwells, the place where God is in perfection, uh, in a way that perhaps the, the Genesis uh, 1 and 2 world experience God. But the, the post-Genesis 3 world does not experience God fully. And the point of what David is saying here um, is that God's glory not only fills the earth, but it also fills uh, the farthest point of our upward vision, the heavens. As far as you can see, it doesn't matter whether you've got something, you know, binoculars or telescope in hand. As far as you can see, God's glory is above that still. You might have been watching the news uh, this past week and, and, and seen the, the news about the, the launching of the James Webb Telescope. I've been watching this uh, fairly closely, um, not just because of the sermon, but uh, because I really enjoy astronomy. Uh, there was a new telescope launched on Christmas Day, uh, launched by an international consortium of, of uh, space agencies and launched out of French Guinea, of all places. I didn't realize they did that down there. Uh, but this Webb Telescope... Um, it comes about 30 uh, years on the heels of the Hubble telescope, which was launched in 1990. The thing about it is it's not just a little bit better than Hubble. It's a lot better than Hubble. It's 100 times stronger of a telescope than Hubble. I know you've seen some of the images that the Hubble telescope has uh, given to mankind. Uh, you could picture uh, Jupiter with um, you know, the red storm, the red circle there, or Saturn with its rings. Can you imagine what 100 times stronger can do. Because of this system, it's the strongest telescope ever built, because of the imaging system that it has and because it works in the infrared light spectrum, which is not a spectrum of light that we can see, the expectation of astronomers and astrophysicists is that this telescope will allow us to see the galaxies uh, that are billions and billions of light years away. It's hard to wrap our minds around that. Um, but what they're, what they're saying is uh, these galaxies are perhaps the oldest and uh, the earliest in our universe. If you think about that for a moment, if we try—not that we can—but if you try to wrap your heads around space, it's mind-blowing, mind-blowing stuff. NASA uh, believes, and they've—they've they've corrected themselves. They, they used to uh, think it was billions of billions of galaxies. Now they believe there's hundreds of billions of galaxies. Got a little bit more information. Hundreds of billions. Is that really that different from billions of billions of mercy? We just, can't, we, we just can't fathom it. We don't even understand our own galaxy. One, the Milky Way. Humans have not scratched the surface of what God has made in our universe. And what David is saying in the psalm is still universally true, despite all of our technological advancements and discoveries, that the created universe as glorious as it is, cannot be more glorious than the creator of it. It's not possible. It's not possible. However glorious the heavens are, the world out there beyond our sight, even the sight of the most powerful telescope, God is still more glorious, for he made it. Now in the next verse, verse 2, we get this really interesting side comment. Uh, Truthfully, you know, I read this verse and I think, wow, wow. This psalm would be way better without verse 2 in it. This is what it says. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. It's interesting. I mean, the rest of the psalm, it's about outer space. It's about the created order and God's glory in it. We get this really interesting thing here. It just doesn't seem to have anything to do with the rest of the psalm. If we chew on this verse a little bit more, what we'll find is there is a connection. Here is a connection to the rest of the psalm. We're going to come back to this verse in in just a moment. For now, we need to see where David goes in the next two verses, verses 3 and 4. This is what he says. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Again, David says, uh, when I look at your heavens, we get that designation heavens. And here we get a more specific indication of what David is speaking of when he says that word. David's looking up at the night sky. Perhaps he's on the rooftop of the palace in Jerusalem. Maybe he's he's out in the wilderness from wherever he is, though. he's He's looking up. He sees the moon and the stars. And it describes these heavenly bodies as the work of your fingers. He's describing God as, as this cosmic virtuoso who sculpts out of clay the celestial bodies and puts them in their place. And of course, we can see how David is drawing upon the theology of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God the Creator. Who among us hasn't done this, meaning gone out and looked at the sky above? I know that Phoenix doesn't present us with the greatest night skies. Um, there's a lot of light pollution, uh, but we still do it. I don't think there's a human um, who's had a chance to do so that hasn't done this, to look at the night sky. We just can't help but be drawn to the handiwork above us. Now, David, like the rest of us without a telescope, he's using his naked eye, right? Which means uh, what David is seeing is is the moon and some stars all at a distance. Meaning, David has never seen a close-up of the moon's craters, He's never seen an image of the fiery plumes of gas coming from the sun. He's not seen a photograph of Saturn with its rings. He knows nothing of galaxies or of supernovas or of black holes. And yet, looking up at the moon we all see and the stars available to our naked eye, the question that arises within David is this. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? What business does the maker of galaxies have to do with us? Why would he even notice we are here? This is exactly the right question to ask. It's the correct question. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes in periods of personal darkness, whether suffering or distress, I've gone outside and I've looked up at the sky and I've said, God, why don't you care about me? Now, those are honest emotions. And God can handle them. But isn't that crazy? Isn't it crazy to look up at the maker of the universe and say, God, I wish my life had gone a little bit more like I wanted it to go. Where are you? We are so incredibly small. So small. If you've just gone 30,000 feet in an airplane, you've got a glimpse of this. We are so small. We get a couple of hours of better perspective. Our lives really don't matter, do they? And then we land and we're back into thinking we're the kings of the universe. What's most amazing about David's question is the acknowledgement that despite our insignificance, and David can acknowledge that fact too, is that despite our insignificance, God not only takes notice of us, but He's mindful of us. Meaning, we are not just in God's peripheral vision. Well, oh, that's nice. We take center of vision. Not that God cares more about us than He cares about Himself, He does not. He's God. And yet he has chosen to put us in the center of his sight. God is not only thinking about us, but he is caring for us in the tenderest of ways. I want you to imagine for a moment um, King Arthur, the stuff of English legends. Despite being a really good and noble king, he was that. One thing you'd never expect Arthur to do is to go around giving his attention to um, the peasants in his kingdom. He's just not going to sit down and talk about their daily affairs and the tedious things uh, that make their lives so difficult. He's not going to. He's the king. Arthur spends his time with the knights of the round table. He spends his time with the lords and the ladies of the royal court. He gives his attention to the big picture stuff of the kingdom, like the invading Saxons, right? That's what kings do. And so if Arthur, as good of a king as he would, just wouldn't take the time to sit down and talk about the ordinary affairs of peasants, how much more unlikely is it that he might sit down in a rocking chair, grab a, a bottle of milk, and feed it to a dirty, soiled diaper peasant baby? He just wouldn't. He wouldn't. Now there's a word for that. There's a word for that movement. That's unthinkable for Arthur, and it's called condescension. Condescension. Now, in our modern era, that has a negative connotation. Condescension is when someone patronizes you, right? It's when someone makes it out as if they're better than you. We don't like that. But condescension has an older use. The word prefix, con, means with. means with, right? And dissension, we know that. It means to come down. So you put it together. It means to come down. And to be with. Condescension is when someone from a superior rank. Comes down to be those with an inferior rank. That doesn't happen. Why would it? For Arthur the king. To nurse a dirty peasant infant. Would be condescension of the most compassionate kind. And you wouldn't see it. What David is talking about in this psalm. Is a far greater condescension. Who are we that the king of the universe would get down in the dirt to care about our daily affairs? Why would God care for even the most insignificant among our insignificant human race, meaning a baby? Baby. This is where we come back to verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Don't take offense at this, but among human beings, babies matter the least. Here's what I mean. I'm not saying that they have uh, less intrinsic value than adults. No. I'm not saying that they bear less of God's image What I am saying is, in the eyes of utility, in the eyes of contribution to the family (laughs) or to society, babies give the least. They can't. As Father Bob talked about last week, they're vulnerable. They're weak. They're helpless. They can't do anything for themselves, let alone for you. And thus, they're a drain on resources. Parents? Have you experienced the drain on resources? (laughs) They're worth it. But it is a drain on resources. If you are in a war, I I know that most of you don't even know this, but if you're in a war, babies are not uh, good soldiers. (laughs) They're not. In fact, if you have babies in your army, um, not only are they not going to protect you, they're actually going to need protection. Which means that your soldiers, the adult soldiers, will need to care for the babies rather than fighting the enemy. Your army's done. Promise. What David is saying in verse 2 is that God cares for the most insignificant of the insignificant. And that is precisely where God's strength and power are most visible. As if when God chooses to fight a war, he recruits an army of infants and still wins. That's what David's saying. And that truth that that God cares for us is deeply mysterious when we look out and we see the moons and the the stars above and we acknowledge how majestic and glorious must be the creator of those things. Now if David knew this, if David knew this millennia ago, how much more so should we? How much more so Our understanding of not just the Earth, but of the universe has grown exponentially, especially in the last couple of centuries. We've just launched a telescope that is going to look at the oldest galaxies in the universe. And all of this dramatic increase in scientific knowledge and exploration, it only leads us further in the truth of how infinitesimal human beings are, in relativity to what's out there. And it only adds to the mystery of what David says next. Despite our insignificance, in verses 5 to 8, David goes on to say that God has chosen to do something unique with us. He says, yet you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Not only does God care for us, as David has been saying, but here David goes on to marvel at the power and the influence that for whatever reason God has put into our hands. Dominion, as he calls it. Scripture teaches us that humans aren't the most sophisticated beings God has made. Angels are. Angels have a higher nature. They participate in God's glory and do God's will in a way that we do not. But even though God saw fit to make us a little lower than the heavenly beings, as David calls them, God chose to do something with humanity that he did not do with angels. He says, you crown man with glory and with honor. Here again, we're hearing those resonances from Genesis 1 and 2, part of David's scripture, the Torah. And he's describing that humans are the last thing that God made. They're, They're the apex. Human beings bear God's image. Despite being made from dirt, God breathed his own life, his own breath into us. And therefore, all of our lives, this is the Christian belief, the truth, all of our lives, from fetus to the aged, are sacred. Sacred. And beyond just bearing the likeness of God, because that would be enough, being able to, to reflect some of his glory and goodness in the world, for whatever reason, God saw fit to give dominion over the earth to us. From the inanimate creation to the animate meaning from the forests and all the resources in them to the mountains and all the resources in them to the seas and all the resources in them and to the entire animal kingdom. All the things under the earth are under the influence and power of human beings. And can't we see that? I know we can, for worse and for better. And because of all of this, David marvels. He marvels at the power and the influence God has given to us. He marvels at the fact that God would even take notice of us. And therefore, he marvels at the glory and the majesty of the God who is so far above and yet so near. And so, with these three things in his mind, David repeats the refrain of the psalm, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And David is inviting us into that. He's probably writing this psalm to be used in temple worship for the people of God to join in the praise of our God. And yet, this is not the end of the marveling that takes place in this psalm. You see, while David could not have imagined while he was writing this psalm, we in the church can see how these words marvel at something else, too. They marvel at the incarnation. This psalm, the entire thing, From verse 1 to verse 9, typologically speaking, is a hymn about the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You see, the God who is majestic and glorious above all things is so mindful and so caring of lowly human beings that he even condescended to us further and was made one of us. Verse 5, David said, Yet you have made him mankind, yes, But Christ, a little lower than the heavenly beings. The author of Hebrews in chapter 2 references that verse from Psalm 8 as an allusion to Jesus Christ. Likewise, the Apostle Paul perhaps was thinking of this psalm when he wrote in Philippians chapter 2, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born born in the likeness of men. Yet he was made a little lower than the heavenly beings. How could the God of moons, the God of stars, the God of galaxies and the black holes be any more condescending to us than that he would be with us as one of us? It's not possible. It's not possible. And this Jesus, both the Son of God and the Son of Man, fully divine and fully human, not only became insignificant like us, but he, does, he died an insignificant death, a detestable death by all human accounts. And what Paul will write in Philippians 2 after these verses is essentially what David is saying here in verses 5 and 6 of the psalm. You have made Christ a little lower than the heavenly beings, and yet you've crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet, such that at the name of Jesus every tongue would confess and every knee would bow, saying, Jesus Christ is the Lord. This is the mystery, the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery that we give our attention to today that out of the mouth of one human baby, one Christ child, God established strength to steal the enemy. Sin and death and evil are are put to flight by one, just one insignificant baby. From an insignificant family, in an insignificant town, in an insignificant nation, among an insignificant race, on an insignificant planet. And in that, God's strength is shown. That's the glory of the incarnation. And actually, this psalm, it doesn't just speak to what we celebrate now in Christmastide. It also sets up what we will celebrate next week with the Feast of the Epiphany. Because remember how I said that, that kings don't associate with peasant babies. We know that God does, and next week, three Gentile kings will too. And more than that, the way in which they were drawn to Jesus Christ, the way in which they marveled at his glory, was the same way in which David did, and it was looking up, and then they saw the star, and they rejoiced with great joy. The psalm it, it invites us to get our eyes off ourselves, off of what's in front of us, and to look up. To look up, because in that we are helped. We are helped to see God as big as He is and to see ourselves as insignificant as we actually are. By gazing up at the universe, we discover the heights of God's glory. And we also discover the depths of our own insignificance. And the thing is that over the centuries, um, that gap is widening. That gap is widening when, when telescopes discover that we are not even close to being the center of the universe, materially speaking. And yet... As the gap widens between God's significance as the creator of the billions of universes that are there, billions of galaxies that are there, and as the gap widens between that and our understanding of our own lowliness, so too does the marveling at how Jesus Christ is the bridge of that expanse. You see, Christ, the God-man, fully God and fully human, with its arms stretched out on the cross, pulls humanity to God across the expanse of the universe, the universe that's sin and death, the gulf that's been created. And it is far bigger than we dreamed. Jesus is the tether to God, the thing that pulls us to. God is so mindful of us so caring, that he himself would bridge the divide. And so, church, with greater rejoicing and greater strength, should we say, O Lord, our Lord, O Jesus, our Christ, how majestic is your name in all the earth can we worship today amen